This episode of the Fatter Future Podcast is sponsored by, well, me and my diet crash course exclusively from Himalaya Podcast Networks. What is my diet crash course? Well, have you ever been curious about 20 of the top diets in the world? You wanted the cliff notes to all of them because you just don't want to read all the books. I have you covered with my diet crash course. 20 of the top diets in the world and maybe some you haven't heard of. Should you try them? What are they about? What does the research say? What does the research maybe not say? Himalaya.com forward slash diet and listen for free and use code diet to listen for two weeks of the Himalaya Diet Crash Course exclusively on the Himalaya Podcast Player. Himalaya.com forward slash diet. And I will see you there. Hey, everybody. It's Joey Thurman. Here's another episode of the Fad or Future Podcast. I have the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. <laughs> Ian Smith in front of me. He's written about 3,517 books, and I think about 3,000 of them were during COVID. Uh, <laughs> Doc. Okay, w- w- once he stops laughing, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have a talk. Thanks for coming on, my friend. Hey, man. Thanks, man. It's always good to be with you. It's an honor. And uh, yeah, I've been really productive, but uh, I've been encouraging everyone else. Listen, there's certain things you can't control in life and certain things you can't control. And right now, focus on the things you can't control. So yeah, I've been doing a lot. You know, it's been great. Yeah. And so you have, how many books have you actually written? Like 20? Well, no, I've written 18. Number 19 comes out October 1st, which is a mystery called The Unspoken, which is a Chicago-based mystery, which is awesome. It's a private investigator. I write fiction and nonfiction, Joe. Yeah. So uh, I sent you The Ancient Nine. That's fiction, obviously. Yeah. but. So um, now I'm writing two books a year. In the spring, I do nonfiction health. In the fall, I do my other passion, which is fiction. So uh, number 19 comes out uh, in October called The Unspoken. And then next year, my health book called Fast Burn uh, will come out in April. That'll be number 20. (laughs) Then we celebrate. Then I celebrate. I don't know how you do that. I mean, I wrote one and I had the idea in October and I got done with it in January. And that's about the time frame you must be writing these things in. Well, you know, here's my thing. And people, everyone has a different method. And, I'm, and I'm, I, I read and listen to writers all the time. I'm very engaged in their process, right? Yeah. My process is pretty simple. I don't start writing a book on my computer until I've written in my head first. Mm. So I write in my head, my book. I see my book. So I spend weeks and, and I'll be in the car, I'll be on a plane, wherever I am, I'm thinking book, right? And so I'll see the character or I'll see the chapters. Outlet. And so I write my book first here. And then when I sit to the computer, it's nothing. I'm a great typist. It's one of my most important classes I took in high school, despite the fact as an athlete, I thought it was a waste of time. <laughs> but, you know, I am a major typist. So, you know, I'm one of those guys, that blah, 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 right? Real technical typist, not finger typing. So, right. so for me, when I sit to a computer, me banging out five to 10 pages, and I already have where, what the flow is in my head, me doing that in a day is nothing, Yeah. you know? Yeah. So I'm lucky, um, but you know, everyone has a different style. I'm also a very disciplined writer, right? So mm-hmm. when I get into, I'm a zone writer. When I get into a zone, like there's no clock, uh, my days, I could be up at three o'clock writing and I could be three o'clock at noon just taking a nap. Like my family knows everything is different when I'm writing, right? And so, I, you know, so when I'm in my zone, man, I can just go, 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 go. That's, 
That is impressive. I just, I just say it's impressive. People keep telling me like, when are you going to write a second book? Like find me a ghost writer. And that's- <laughs> <laughs> no, oh. dude. <laughs> no, you got, no, no, you got to enjoy It's the process, right? It is. It's- it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. Because it was just, it, yeah. Well, listen, I'm not against ghostwriters. Yeah. Plenty of my friends have used ghostwriters. I actually love writing. I like playing with words, finding the right words, editing it, reading it back. Just, I am in love with the process of writing, which makes it easier for me. But however, I do get, for some people, it really logistically is difficult and they just can't wrap their head around writing a 325 page book. I get yeah. it. I get it. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's, it's all about what your process is. Yeah. Anybody listening, don't give me crap when, if, if, or, and when my second book comes out, like you probably had a ghostwriter. No, I'll actually write the thing. Okay. I'll, I'll actually, <laughs> don't, don't come back and be like, well, back in 2020, when he was talking to Dr. Ian Smith, like, no, I'll, I'll, I'll write the damn thing. All right. So let's talk about this. So one of your 19, 18 books right now, uh, mind over weight. So this is interesting because a lot of your other books are talking specifically about diet and how to lose weight and step-by-step implementation of what you should be eating or what you shouldn't be eating. But this is specifically about the mind, which has got to be the most important thing for weight loss or adding muscle tissue or motivation or anything else. So let's get into it. I mean, your your first thing is you start talking about motivation being the X factor. How can people find the motivation? Because we, we get motivated maybe briefly for a day or two or maybe for an hour and then we lose that motivation. How can people actually just grab it by the balls, man, and just move? Well, before we get to motivation, and you and listen, you know this as well as I do, and it's in your book too. You know the importance of motivation. Mm-hmm. You know it's ground zero for everything. Uh, and not just weight loss. It's ground zero for any type of improvement that you want to make in life whether it's having better relationships, learning a new language, it's all about being motivated to actually do it, right? We all have all these great ideas of things we want to do, but how do we get ourselves to get up and say, today I take my first strike, right? So you know this already. But before we get there, you know, I talk about, are you ready to change? Mm. People try to change at the wrong time in their life. And so what happens is in their heart, They say, I want to do better. I want to make a change, but they're actually not ready for it. So that's why I begin the book with that self-assessment tool, the change tool, the Rika tool, which is Eureka tool, which lets you know whether or not this is the right time for you. Mm -hmm. Because people will start trying to make changes when they have uh, friction in their relationships, when they're having uh, money problems, when they're having work problems. And guess what? Some people can still do it, but a lot of people, that is not the optimal time because you are so distracted. You're so torn away into all these different uh, uh, directions that you can't focus on what you need to focus on. And you and I both know that in order to change physically and nutritionally requires a tremendous amount of focus and a tremendous amount of consistency. So the first thing I talk about is the Eureka assessment scale, which came out of Rhode Island. So people can take that. I took it. And I'm ready for change. Okay, okay. Just so you know. Okay, so then we talk about motivation, right? What is motivation? And I tell people all the time, I don't know what you say to your clients, but I say to people, I really can't motivate you. I can only inspire you, Mm. right? That's different. 
Yeah. Motivation, I believe, is something that one must own and possess within them. I don't know what motivates you, man. You may be motivated because you want to look good, because you want to get girls, because you want to live to see your kids walk across the stage in college. I don't know. Right. Um, and so that's why I try to direct people to find their motivation, because I believe that all of us, regardless of how unmotivated we think we are or have been in the past, we all still possess with, with inside of us what I call motivational engines, right? Mm -hmm. Here's the difference, though. The difference is some people know how to access those engines pretty quickly. Others have to really dig deep to find that engine. But it's in there. It's in there. And so chapter one really is about taking you through the process of finding that motivation, unlocking that motivation, and then the next step, which is equally important, which is how do you keep it? You get people who work out for two weeks and then they fall off. So how do you keep yourself alive and reinvigorate with your motivation? And that's why I want to tackle first with the book. Yeah. And, you know, for what, how do people, I mean, so you talk about the different types of motivation, whether it's intrinsic or extrinsic. And I think most people are motivated by these extrinsic factors. Like I've got a reunion coming up or a vacation, or I want to look a certain way but often they don't have the mental awareness to look inside of themselves. Like, why do I actually want to do this? I mean, if you look at all these like different, like, and obviously TV shows, we've got to take them for what they will. And you've been on a bunch of TV shows, but often, you know, even like revenge body with Khloe Kardashian, often at the end, it wasn't about getting revenge on whatever person. Like, wow, I found myself or I always wanted to, I know there was one where it was like a gay guy I never came out to his father. He's like, I realized it wasn't about my dad. It was about me and all those sorts of stuff. So often people find this after they reach a certain goal. But look, you even mentioned in there, like a lot of people have the means for personal trainers and all this sort of stuff. But if you have this all the time, and we were talking in the pre-interview, like if HBO calls me up to train an actor or something, their motivation is $15 million plus I'm, I'm coming in. I'm, I'm literally showing up at their doorstep. I'm training them a couple times a day. I've got them a private chef. The food is showing up. So their motivation is $15 million plus me showing up and training them and giving everything else. But most people don't have those means. So how can you actually find that within yourself? Yeah. So um, let me get my copy of the book here. So let me, just for the listeners, um, you know, you mentioned extrinsic and intrinsic motivators. So mm -hmm. basically external and internal. Yep. And an external motivator is that you are motivated by something that's outside of you. For example, you're motivated because you want to walk and look great on a beach in Jamaica and you want people to look at you. That's an external motivator. An internal motivator would be something like, I love to read history books because it makes me feel good and informed of reading and learning. I love to learn. So it's an internal thing. I'm motivated because I like to learn. It's not like I need to learn because I'm taking a test. Mm -hmm. That would be, once again, that's external. I'm, I, I like to read this history because I want to do well on my history exam and get a good grade, that's external. So, you know, in the old days, by the way, and, you know, I've kind of evolved myself. In the old days, when I first started talking about this, I always said, you need to always have internal motivation. Like, that's all that matters. You know, you can't want to lose weight because you want to look good. You got to want to lose weight because you want to live longer, not have diseases, not have high blood pressure. And I've modified that. And now what I'm saying to people is, Internal motivators are critical, but so are external motivators. So you need to have a combination of the two. 
external and internal so that you have this, this package. And if the internal is not working one time, maybe an external is working. If the external is not working, the internal. So you have this kind of safety net yep. that if one of your motivators is not doing what you want to do, the other motivator comes to the rescue. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what I tell people all the time is, you know, and, and I tell people, listen, think about, this is my beginning to people. Think about a time in your life where you had to overcome a difficult set of circumstances. It could be uh, finishing a college course that was tough. It could be uh, dealing with a breakup of a relationship. It could be something like your car broke down. You had to walk three miles to get gas, right? Think about when you were in a challenging situation and you had to solve it and overcome it. You are, you were motivated to get it done. You were motivated to get it done. And so that is proof to you that you can be motivated. Now, how do we draw on that motivation you had previously and package it so that it now becomes always accessible to you in whatever your new task is? So what I tell people is there are all kinds of extrinsic motivators. It could be fame, praise, money, material rewards, getting promoted, feeling superior. Um, these are all things that have, have driven people externally, internal motivators. Is it fun, pleasurable, the experience? Is it gonna satisfy you? Is there gratification? It doesn't make you feel worthy. Do you feel like you're accomplished? So people should look at what the external and internal motivators are and see if some of those work with them. And then in the rest of the chapter, I take you through how to enhance those motivators so that now they are right there. They're very readily accessible to you and you can employ them in your life. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense because I think that people, you're right, people often do focus on one thing, whether it's completely extrinsic, external, or internal. And then what happens when that is gone? What are you going to do? You know, it's like fa fake, facing your problems is why a lot of people don't like going to therapy because, wait a minute, if I fix my problems and there's still something, I still don't have my magical life that I dreamt of, uh-oh, I really got to face reality here. So it's, it makes a lot of sense that um, you've got to just kind of dabble in both here. And Joe, can I say this? For example, yeah. you, train, you tra have trained very successfully, very famous actors, but then they reach this body that they're looking for and all of a sudden they fall off. <laughs> yeah. Well, guess why they fall off? Because their only motivator was the paycheck from the acting job. Right. And if they had maybe a couple of other motivators, a couple of internal motivators, as well as the external, they'd be able to get through after that job goes away. They still have that internal motivator keeping them in that, in that shape and, and that drive. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people don't understand because, you know, some of the people that I've trained obviously were very well known. And then they would see this individual like a year later. And it's not like they were trying to gain weight for a role. You know, it's not like Russell Crowe with whatever he put on 50 yes. pounds to look like that right. sl sloppy cop. I can't remember what role it was. But, right. you know, like it's, 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 it's not like it was for a role. It's just like, screw it. I, work, I worked out hard for three months to look, look a certain way for this role. But I mean, you're right. That, that is a huge motivator. But once it's gone, then pretty much goes your body that you worked hard for. That's right. All right. So now you, you were talking about over justification effect and those extrinsic things. Can you, you touch on that a little bit? Because I think what people, they do just over kind of justify everything, you know, and then um, it just, be, it gets to become way too much. Yeah. You know, 
this is what I find interesting about about people and their motivators. Like, um, people unfortunately tend to put value on their motivators. Like, don't do a, don't do a comparison. Hmm. Like, don't say this motivator is more important than that motivator, and more important than that motivator. The problem with that scenario when people do that is that they reduce the value of it. And so therefore they don't give it, they don't treat it with the same import that they need to treat it. So now all of a sudden you stratify, you stratified your motivators. And then if you're not hitting your first three motivators, you look at the bottom three and say, ah, you know, that's, you know, that's not enough to get me through. And, and I think that's a big mistake that people make. Mm. You got to say to yourself that all these things are important to me. It's, it's important for me not to have high blood pressure, but it's just as important to me to be able to put on a bathing suit and feel good and feel comfortable and, and be okay and want attention from it. So it's not, well, you know, that's kind of vain. So that's not really that important. No, it is important. Yeah. Right. And we, we can't run away from that. And I think people tend to, to um, run away from the appearance of a motivator because it may, it may, make them come across a certain way. And it doesn't work that way. It's not about being judgmental about mm -hmm. your motivator, right? If you say to me, you want to look good for your reunion, you know, your 25th reunion from high school, what's wrong with that? Right. You should, right? right? That's a great motivator. Only thing I ask of you is, let's also throw a motivator in there that will take you past the 25th reunion, mm -hmm. right? Because what I don't want is I don't want you to hit it and then say, okay, that's it. You know what I mean? Like, um, like now I've done it, you know, let, let me move on to something else. Right. Yep. And just so um, you know, it would be my 20th high school reunion, 20th. not, not 25th. <laughs> I'm talking about myself. You know? I'm, 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 I'm much older than you are. You know what I mean? Um, I, I, I had to point that out. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. But I also, I'm, I'm looking at the books. I wanted people, I wish people would see the book better, but well, what look, people, yeah, we're, we're going to have off clips and stuff on Instagram and then we'll put it over here. But yeah. Yeah. Book. But what I want people to see, for example, is what I try to do is I try to give you an action plan at the end of each chapter. Yep. Right. Because I want each chapter. It's only seven chapters. It's, a, it's funny. Let me give you the backstory of this book. So I've always wanted to write about the mind because I believe that everything starts in the mind mm -hmm. and publishers want you to write something that's already been tried and true and successful. So they want another diet book. Another diet. Listen, I've written a lot of diet books. I will write more diet books, but I felt like now was the time to let people know we got to get our mind together before our bodies will follow. So I argued with them. One, I argued over the size of it. I wanted to be very small. As you can see, it's the yeah. size of my hand. Yeah. My, my other metric was you got to be able to read this on one flight from New York to LA. You should be able to get through the book. And the other thing was price point. I said to them, I want this to be a cheaper book. Like by the time Amazon discounts this book, I want it to cost people like 15 bucks, mm -hmm. you know, not 24.95, which my books usually are. So I won on all three fronts. Um, and what I also wanted to do was I wanted to make each little chapter its own thing. Like you don't have to read in order. You could sit here and say, well, you know what? My issue isn't motivation. My issue is cravings. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. Go to chapter four. It talks about cravings. My issue is not cravings. It's about like, I have a bad relationship to food. I can't, you know, I eat it when I'm upset. I eat it when I celebrate. I said, okay, fine. Go to chapter seven. So the design of the book 
with little lines in it so people can take notes. The design of it is, this is like a little workbook for you. Yep. And it's, it's, it's your stuff. It's not Dr. Ian's stuff. You put and answer the questions that work for you and that way you own it better. Yeah, it, it is. It is a easy read because often for me is, I, I mean, I read a lot of books for, for the show and other things, but it is that you can, you pick it up and nice, easy read. And I even filled out a bunch of different things. Yeah. There was, there was some of the stuff in there, like cravings and stuff. Like I don't need to fill that out. Like I'm, I'm good, you know, right. uh, but, but, but I did like, what is my motivation factor or whatever that first part was I'm like, okay, I'm ready to rock. I'm good to go. Hey Joe, I didn't answer your question. I apologize. You no worries. About, oh, sorry. About, <laughs> oh, sorry. I got off my rant. I apologize. I, I do the you same thing. The, yeah. You asked about over justification. Yeah. Let me explain what that means. This is over justification effect. Mm. Let's say you're, you have an internal motivator. Let's say here's the example. You work at a veterinary hospital because you love animals and you do it as a volunteer. You don't get paid. You do it because you love animals. It makes you feel good and you like wildlife, blah, blah, blah. Let's say the veterinary hospital says, Hey, guess what, Joe, we're going to hire you now. We're going to pay you. You're such a good volunteer. We want to make you a staff member. And so we're going to pay you to do this. Okay, fine. I mean, you know, I'll take some money. So you take this money, you're doing well, you're making decent money. So not only are you doing something you like, but now you're getting paid for it. What happens sometimes is what if all of a sudden the hospital says, listen, we got budget cuts and you know, we can't pay you anymore. Sometimes people will say, okay, I'm done. You can't pay me, I'm done. What's happened now is your internal motivator, which is how you started to be with the animals and to be satisfied with that, has now been overtaken by the external motivator, which is the payment you're getting. And now you have what's called the over justification effect. Mm -hmm. And so now your external motivator has diminished your internal motivator. And that's the one thing people have to be careful of when it comes to motivation. You gotta make sure that if there is an external motivator connected to your internal, that you never allow that external to overtake what the original drive was mm. in your motivation. How, so how do people, how do you get through that? Right? So if you, if you, yeah. if you, if you had that initial thing where you, yeah, you wanted to volunteer and you know, animal shelter, whatever. And then all of a sudden something else came in and what happens in that situation? Awareness. The only way to get through it is awareness. You have to remind yourself, that yeah the money's good and i'm now able to eat out pay my car note a little better but you have to still stay grounded to understand that my passion you always have to have a clear vision of your passion i'm being driven not because i can do these other things and i'm actually willing to do without these things if, if it comes down to it but i still have my base which is my passion for being with the animals so it's just a matter of constantly being self-aware of where you are and what your original intent was and your original motivation. Okay. It's not easy, but you got to do it. Yeah. What about when we fail? So if we, if we, if we've got, if we got the motivation and people are setting these and we'll get into you know, goal setting even more, but what happens when they fail, you know, like you all of a sudden you had that veterinary job and then you lost the job and like, this is my perfect job. I, and I was getting paid for it. What happens when we just fall? Yeah. Failure is extremely important. Failure is the beginning of growth. That's what I believe. And I think mm -hmm. that people who don't fail enough 
will probably never grow as big as they could could grow. Yeah. Because it's the failure that gives you the real world analytical data that you can sit there and think about and start rejiggering and modifying and tweaking yourself and your thought process and the way you look at things. And so the part about failure is, first of all, you have to understand that failure is going to happen. Some people never consider that they're going to fail. And so when failure happens, it decimates them because they never thought, you know what, this could get kind of tricky. I may not, this may not work out. So my approach always to people is, listen, guys, you're going to begin a diet program. Guess what? You're going to have some bad days. I tell you right from the beginning, I don't care if you're my plan or anyone's plan. You're going to have some bad days and make some bad decisions. And there's going to be some tough times. I say that right in the beginning. Now, now that you accept that's going to happen, this is how we're going to deal with it. Okay. We know it's coming and we know it's going to be a temporary setback, but that's okay. We're still going to stay positive. We're going to stick to our plan or slightly modify the plan as necessary, but we're going to realize that even though we fell off the bike, once we scrape our knees off and wipe the little scratches, once we get back on the bike, we know we're still going to be able to pedal and we're still going to be able to go down the road. And that is the key to dealing with failure is that you have to embrace the failure and not feel ashamed by the failure or feel like that failure is representative of your ability to do anything. And people unfortunately take failure as a sign that they are no good. And it's just the opposite. I see failure as a sign of, of the universe saying to you, you need to make some changes, right? When I finish a manuscript and hand it to my editor and my editor says, here are some things you may want to consider changing. They're not saying that I'm a bad writer. They're not saying that my idea is a failure. What they're saying is here are some tweaks you may be able to make to actually improve the manuscript. And Mm -hmm. that I think is the mindset that you have to have when dealing with failure. You know, that is huge because I think a lot of people nowadays with social media and instant gratification and everything, we're all meant to be told that we've got to be perfect and all that. And this is not a conversation about social media. Uh, but at the same time, we've, we've, we're always got like everybody's being given a trophy and like everybody's getting a pat on the back and like everybody has to like, everybody's like so worried about what everybody else is thinking. And we've got to like be very careful about what people say. And like, yes, there's got to be more awareness about things. Like I said, this is not what this podcast is about. I did one earlier on that. So that's not what that's what that is about. But I think that people like we're all having to be told like, you did such a great job and here's your trophy and you get a smiley face sticker on your paper. Like, why can't it be like, Doc, here's a bunch of red ink on your paper for people. Paper is a thing that people used to write on. Uh, <laughs> and red ink on your paper. And you're like, oh, these are some edits that can make my book better. And I can be better for this. And I think a lot of our culture now is, yeah, that, that fear of failure and not embracing it. And like, I suffer from depression. I've got to embrace that. And when... Like I'm going to have it for the rest of my life. It's not going to go away. I don't know. Was it a matter of the five, six concussions I had playing hockey or was it it genetic? I don't know, but I'm going to have it. Right. So I've got to be aware of that. So there might be days or weeks where like, yeah, I did. I feel, I feel bad. I feel down, but I used to not tell my family or tell my wife, but Mm -hmm. now I'm like, Hey, I'm having one of those days or just, I don't know. It's not you. It's nothing that you did, but I'm Mm -hmm. embracing it as you Mm -hmm. said, and I absorbed Mm -hmm. it. And then I, and then I told her 
this is nothing you did. I just woke up in a sad mood and I'm going to have that day. And as you say in your book, there's 24 hours in the day. Maybe in the next 24 hours would be better. Maybe Mm -hmm. it'll suck again. But Mm -hmm. embracing that fall Mm -hmm. is huge. And I I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. And let me just also say, I think that one of the reasons why people are not open to the redlining and to the corrections is because unfortunately people these days are not doing it in a constructive manner. Mm -hmm. They're doing it in a destructive manner. So instead of saying to someone, Hey, you know, you may want to consider doing it this way because if you do it this way, it'll be more efficient, it'll be more effective. Instead, people like annihilate people. They, they're, they're mean-spirited. They say it in a way that's not very positive. Yeah. And I'm a positive person. And so I'm not perfect, but I try to be more positive. And so I think people have to hear constructive criticism versus you're no good. You know, like when I talk to my kids, you know, about sports, you know, I have to be very careful about how I address them making corrections in their swing, for example. Mm. You know, I can't sit and say, why aren't you doing it this way, right? right? Instead of said, listen, you're doing it this way, but when you do it this way, this is what's happening. But if you tried it this way, maybe you'll get more topspin on the ball, it'll get deeper into the core and it'll land in rather than out. So it's really about kind of how we communicate our, our, our criticism, I think is very, very pivotal. Yeah, uh, and, and that's good for, especially, parents listening because you know I know that like sometimes when I was growing up playing hockey and I played hockey through college and other sports too but it was really like coaches and stuff they were just this you need to treat everybody differently you need to read the room so yes. people say what type of trainer are you like what type of trainer do you need they mean to yell at you and be like what the hell did you eat this weekend like you look like a bloated mess I, I, I could probably tell that to you doc you'd be like yeah you're right I like I did just go overboard or I've told that to someone else, they'd probably break down and cry. Sometimes you need yes. to hold people's hands. Sometimes you need to run with them. Sometimes you need to walk. Sometimes they need to crawl. And sometimes they need to fail. So I, I think you're right, like assessing that and being able to express that in a way where they can understand it, where you're not telling them they're wrong, but like try doing this specific, uh, another way, you know? So they're eventually going to go beat Raphael Nadal, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Your kids mm-hmm. get there, uh, and then they take care of you. You don't need to write twenty books yeah. every, every. That's right. Every uh, that's, 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 so, how do you? How do speak like? How do we goal set? Because everyone talks yeah. about these. You know, I want to lose fifty pounds. Great. How how do we do that? I always talk about people just like making small goals, but I mean, even in your book, you've got just the whole chapter on on how to go about that so you are less likely to fail and then using those failures can help bring you forward. Yeah, let me say, so chapter two is the genius of goal setting. I believe that one of the major, one of the top three reasons why people fail, and by the way, this is not just about weight loss, it's life in general actually, but one of the top three reasons why people fail at what they're setting out to do is because they don't know how to set the right goals. Mm. And so, Somebody will say, hey, Dr. Ian, I want to lose 30 pounds. Okay. I look at you. I look at your BMI. Yeah, that's a good goal. You need to lose 30 pounds to be in a healthier BMI range. But then they'll say to me, I want to lose it in five weeks. And I said, but that's a bad goal, right? That's, a, that's not a good goal. You want to lose, on average, six pounds in five weeks. If you had 200 pounds to lose, okay, fine, right? Because it's all about relativity. But if you have... 
at most 40 pounds and you want to lose 30, you want to lose it in six weeks. So people have to understand how to set the right goals. And when people set the wrong goals, this is what happens. I see this all the time. They will be doing well on a program, but because they've set these goal benchmarks that are so lofty and so out of scale, because they're not hitting them, they think that they're failing. They think that, that they're not doing well or the plan is no good. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You lost three pounds a week in th for three weeks. That is exceptional. Yeah. But you wanted to lose five pounds a week for three weeks for 15 pounds, and you only lost nine, so you think you failed. No, you're doing great. The plan is doing great. Your goals are out of alignment. Yep. And so this chapter is all about helping people figure out what is the right goals. This is what I believe. One, I believe goals should be challenging. No doubt about it. Don't set your goal to lose five pounds in a year when you need to lose 30 pounds. So you've got to be challenged. Growth only occurs when you are challenged. Number two, your goal has to be attainable. Don't set unrealistic goals that you can never reach because you're never going to be satisfied and you're going to start feeling like you're a failure. Number three, the goal must be multidimensional. Just don't say, I want to lose 30 pounds. Have some other non-scale goals. You know, I want to be able to climb two flights of step without getting winded. I want to be able to walk a mile without having to stop. Put some other goals and along with the weight loss goal. And the last thing I want to say is that goals should be fragmented, broken down into smaller, what I call mini goals. Because if you think about this, and this is psychological, if someone says, hey, Dr. Ian, I got 50 pounds to lose. Okay, fine. If they were to consistent, 50 pounds is a lot. You know, I tell people, Go lift 50 pounds somewhere, like uh, lift a 45 plate and five. It's heavy. Yep. You're trying to lose that in your body. That's a lot. So I tell people, sometimes when you think about that primary goal, it becomes so overwhelming mentally because you can't see, geez, 50 pounds, I'll never get there. It's going to require all these sacrifices. And people get totally overwhelmed by the magnitude of the primary goal and they fail right from the beginning. They just can't, they can't wrap their head around it, so they just quit. So that's why I say, set your primary goal, that's good, but then put that in the back. That's in the, in the rear. Now, let's set the mini goal. Week one, two pounds. Week two, three pounds. Week three, zero pounds. Mm -hmm. Week four, one pound. When you set those mini goals, now you can focus mentally on hitting that goal for the week. And when you do that, one week plus one week plus one week, all of a sudden you're three weeks in and look at your, look at your progress. And so we're going to get to that 50, but let's not think about the 50. We, uh, month one, I want six to eight pounds. Great. Month two, five pounds. And so that I think is the genius of goal setting, setting goals that are going to help facilitate you staying motivated and in the game rather than goals that are unreachable that are going to deflate your drive. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's a good tip for people, especially weight loss individuals, to have some other goal. It's great to lose the weight or to look a certain way, but it's, it's amazing to say, I can walk up my three flights of steps without having to take the elevator. You know, that right there is just that extra reward system for them. Functional goals. Functional yeah. goals. You know, yeah. daily, daily living functional goals are very important. Yeah. I mean, even with my clients that... Um, I didn't have, a, I mean, I've had some clients that have lost like a hundred something pounds, but a lot of them need to lose 10, 20, 30 pounds. But then some that want to add muscle, 
I'll be like, like, yeah, I know you want to look better, but let's set a goal. Okay. You can do two pull-ups right now. And they look like crap, you know? So like we're, we'll call it two. But <laughs> after this four weeks or six week cycle, you know, whatever we have you on here, okay, let's try to double that or whatever. And then writing those things down. So even if aesthetically they may, mm -hmm. may not be where they want to be, when I check that, like you just increased your bench press by 25% in four weeks. That's exactly. crazy. You know, that's like, crazy. Oh, wow, that's good. You, you <laughs> could do a plank for 30 seconds before and now you're at a minute and a half. And it looks better. Like, well, so it's great. So it is, I mean, anybody listening, like trainers, doctors, anything else, that's another way to like validate your own work. Because if yes. you're just setting that one specific goal and they don't hit that to a T, like then you're almost setting yourself up for failure too. And then having right. those other goals, like, well, yeah, yeah, you lost 25 pounds instead of 30, but you just crushed a mile. You weren't able to run. Yeah, so right. I, I think that's, there, there's, there's a way, there's a good tip for you, for you not to lose your clients or, or your money. That's right. This podcast is full of things, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what, what about when you're hitting your goals and reward systems? Because I can't stand it when people reward themselves with that red velvet cake or whatever their crack was ahead of time. Like, wait a minute, man. So you... Your, your cocaine, your shot alcohol, if you were an alcoholic or you're addicted to, you know, the snow is that red velvet cake. So you lose all that weight. Like I'm going to get to have a piece of red velvet cake. Well, you're just going to eat the whole entire thing. Like you've been abstaining from that for a long time. So how do we set these reward systems that are actually good for us that won't set people back to where they were beforehand? Reward systems and rewards need to be correlative to what has been achieved. You can't sit there and say, I'm trying to lose 30 pounds. And at my five pound weight loss mark, I'm going to go buy a car. Like that's out of proportion. You may want to do it at the end of 30 pounds, which is still very generous, but, but that's <laughs> out of proportion, right? right? You know, you got to make sure that it matches. Maybe at five pounds, you go buy yourself a shirt you've been wanting to buy, or, uh, you know, you download you know, a film or something, something that is commensurate to mm. what the actual achievement is. So that's number one. You got to make sure that the goals match the rewards. Number two, think about your goal. I mean, think about your rewards, right? You don't want a reward that's going to encourage or entice you to participate in the behavior you're trying to get away from, yeah. right? So people will say, well, when I hit my goal, I'm going to go and have, you know, this crazy, I'm going to splurge on this crazy dinner. But these are all the things we're trying to stay away from that shouldn't be a reward and so i think that people have to i think reward system is very important by the way i mean rewards this is the external motivation thing right rewards can be very motivating but you have to be very careful about your selection of the rewards and you know think about it i mean you should set right in the beginning of a journey you should set that's why i said take that big goal and break it down right next to five pounds Here's the reward. So goal, reward, goal, reward. And let me tell you something. You have that on paper above your desk or in your phone, and you look at that. That really becomes a motivator when you're sitting there and, you know, you have two people next to you eating cheesecake for dessert, and you chose, you know, a bowl of fruit with a little whipped cream. You know, that becomes a motivator. Like, this is the journey that I'm on, and this is why my reward is what it is and why I'm going to still eat these berries and cream rather than the cheesecake. So I think that re the reward system 
is not often talked about as far as in a formal way, but I think it's very critical for people who are trying to make uh, make improvements. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I used to eat a tub of whipped cream myself when I was a kid. It was, <laughs> it was delicious. The ready whip. I was never, oh. Into, oh, yeah, I was never into whipped cream. I didn't like the texture of whipped cream as a kid. For some reason, uh, you're, a t- you're a texture person. Yeah, I never had it. I never. I can't remember one time. Like that's not true. One time I tried to eat a sundae, and between the bananas, which were soft but had consistency, and the and the whipped cream, I couldn't do it. <laughs> Just yeah. give me the ice cream. Yeah, that's, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge sweet guy, which is, I just, I can't have it. Well, I can't have it in the house. I could just, I, I know if I'm getting ready for something, I don't eat it. But um, don't eat, don't eat um, a tub of whipped cream. It's not good for you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so that's a good segue. What about cravings? How do, how do we break those? Because those are huge for people. And, you know, people get up in the morning and they're, they're craving something, whether that's hormonal or they're used to eating or all sorts of different things. Like, how do you break that cycle? Yeah, it's one of my favorite chapters, Crush the Cravings. Um, let me try to break down real fast, if I can, about what a craving is. A craving is the body's desire um, to actually attain something, right? And so... There's hunger and there are cravings. And this is the best way I can explain it to people. Hunger is like this. In your car, when you are low on oil, a light will come on and say, low on oil, add oil, okay? And no matter how many times you turn your car on or off, that light is always gonna come on until you put oil in the car, until you feed it oil, that light's gonna stay there. That's what hunger is. Hunger is going to stay there until you actually nourish the body and satisfy the physiological need to have nutrition, to have nourishment. Cravings are different. Cravings are temporary. In fact, research shows that most cravings can be outlasted. If you can withstand the 15, 20 minutes, they will go away. So here's a craving. A craving is you get into your car and on your dash or your module, it says to you, do you want to connect your Bluetooth? And you can click yes or no. And if you don't click those buttons after a certain period of time, the prompt goes away. It just goes away. You start driving, it goes away. That is what a craving is. If you don't respond to it over a period of time, it's going to actually go away. The key is, can you withstand those 15 to 20 minutes? Because cravings can be very intense for people. Now, why does it happen? It happens because of the pleasure reward pathway in our brain. So this is what happens. When you eat something, let's say I like cupcakes. I love a chocolate cupcake. When I eat a chocolate cupcake, it releases in my brain dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter a chemical messenger that goes between one nerve cell and the other. So I eat the chocolate cake, it releases, it floods my brain with this dopamine, this chemical. That chemical then travels to the front of my brain and it says, hey guys, let me tell you something. When Ian ate that chocolate cake, he really liked it. And so let's remember now that chocolate cake equals satisfaction. It's great pleasure. So 
Now that my brain has that experience of releasing that dopamine, your brain always wants that dopamine to be released. So when I walk down the street and I walk by a bakery and I see that beautiful chocolate cupcake sitting in the window, you know what happens? The dopamine gets released into my brain, into my memory part, and it says, oh my goodness, you actually like that chocolate cupcake. You need to stop and get it, mm. right? I now have a craving to get the chocolate cupcake because my brain has a memory that is very pleasurable to me. That is the difference between hunger and a craving. And so one of the ways to deal with the craving is either to outlast it, that's number one. Mm -hmm. Not everyone can do that. And by the way, I also wanna say, even when you think about the cupcake, you release dopamine. So you are either visually motivated by the, you're visually prompted to release dopamine, or you think about it. So for some reason, you heard someone say cupcake behind you in line at Target, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, geez, why well, I love a cupcake right now. <laughs> so that can release dopamine too, which makes you want to go and get it. Now, yeah. what happens is you can either out, outlast it or you can actually eat something that's going to satisfy the craving. But in my book, I believe, eat something that is on the healthier side mm. that's not going to be just the sugar and a pastry. So that's why in the chapter, I give you some really simple um, things that you can do uh, if you crave salt, you crave sugar. For example, let's say you crave sugar and salt. You take watermelon with feta cheese. Mm. So you get the sweetness of the watermelon, but you also get the salty flavor of the feta cheese. And so in the book on pages 121 and 122, I just give you some examples of these saying, you want salty? Try dill pickles, tr try turkey jerky, sesame seaweed snacks. These are things that, yeah, they have calories, but they also have other nutrients, and they're not, um, they're not full of empty calories. Right. They're good calories, and they're satisfying your craving at the same time. Yeah, and you're, and you're not going to get that insulin spike and then turn, you know, have that neuropeptide response and just go nuts. And then all of a sudden, that one cupcake that you saw, you, you bought a dozen for your family, but you're walking back down the street and they're like, I bought three cupcakes for you. Wait, wait a minute. There's, there's nine wrappers here, Doc. That's right. That's right. I'm sorry. I'm just speaking from personal experience here. Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> uh, all right. No, that makes sense. And then that, that kind of goes into, I mean, you talk about even mindful eating in the book too. So just kind of being aware of what happens yeah. to you. And I tell people this all the time, like, all right. You want that, let's go with, keep the, the cupcake here. You want that cupcake. Are you going to be able to eat that cupcake and then be okay with eating the cupcake? Or are you going to eat that cupcake and beat yourself up for the rest of the day for eating the cupcake and, right. think, and think that you just completely derailed your entire diet for a That's 200 right. calorie cupcake? Um, right. so, how, so how do people focus on, well, first of all, what is mindful eating um, for your definition? Yeah. So um, mindful eating, yeah. So a big part of mind overweight is understanding how we employ our minds in all different situations, right? So when you're doing mindful eating, it's being aware, it's being present. It's not when I worked at NBC in New York, you know, the assignment desk is in the middle of the newsroom and the assignment desk is where like, you know, the um, viewer calls come in asking questions or, you know, the police call in to let us know there's something happening here. We have the radio. So it's the, it's the nucleus of the newsroom. But the desk where I worked, it was semicircular. Um, it would be full of like 
donuts and pizza and stuff that either people sent to the newsroom or people had extra and they left it there for people to eat, right? And so, you know, what happens in that situation is you're walking by and you're just grabbing it because it's there. You know, it's mindless eating. It's yeah. mindless. You're not even thinking about it. You just do it because of donuts there. Versus mindful eating where you're saying, like you said, now, do I really want to eat this? And if I eat this, what is it going to do to me physically? What is it, is it going to do to my plan if I'm on a plan? What are the ramifications? Yeah. Also, when you're eating, you know, are you enjoying the food? Are you thinking about, like, eating slower so you can enjoy the texture of the food, the different ingredients? One tip I give is when you're eating something, try to see if you can parse out the different spices and herbs and ingredients when you're eating it. That will make you slow down instinctively because you're trying to go through it. So mindful means you are aware of the food, you're appreciative of the food, you're aware of what it could be doing to you physiologically, um, but you're also enjoying it. And I think that if people ate more mindfully, mm -hmm. then they would find themselves eating less. They would find themselves choosing healthier foods. By the way, I'm not preaching that people can't eat fun foods. Yeah. I eat fun foods like anybody else. I have burgers, I have fries, I have ribs. Listen, I do it too, but I don't do it all the time. And when I do eat, my other foods are mindful of eating my salmon and my asparagus and just thinking about the flavors of it and the sauces and the spices. So I think mindful eating is a great strategy for people um, to, to improve how they eat and why they're eating. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't even really think about it. I mean, as you said, mindless is kind of the, the way it happens. And if anybody's ever been in a TV studio, that is the worst place. <laughs> the worst place. When I was doing all the segments on today's show, I mean, there was just nothing but like you go in in the morning and it's nothing but pastries and everything. And then maybe there was a few pieces of the fruit, like some old cantaloupe or something. I, mean, I don't want to eat that. You know what I'm like, right. like, what the hell? Yeah, the fruit looked terrible, right? Yeah, the fruit right. looked old. Oh, I'm like, no, I'm so, anybody listening from uh, today's show, I love you. You can have me back. Uh, but yeah, it was like, and like, can you give, give me, can I have some blueberries? Like something. No, it was just yeah. like pastries and scones and all that sort of stuff. All right. So let's kind of, let's, let's, wrap this up so how do people they take all of these tools that are in mind over weight and how are they going to actually succeed and how do you put it together yeah the purpose of mind over weight is threefold the first purpose is to get you to understand how important your mind is and you reaching your goals not just in weight loss but life in general like you've got to get this straight i don't care how good of a trainer you have like you how good of a plan you have, it doesn't matter. If your mind is not in the right place, you will not be effective at reaching maximal performance or maximum results. So that's goal number one, to get you to understand how integral the mind is in your success equation. Number two, I really want you to understand two basic things, motivation, of course, but I really want you to choose the right plan for you. So, so many people wanna lose weight, they're motivated, they choose the wrong plan, right? They choose a plan that either the food they can't afford or it's too difficult to follow. It's not giving them enough calories and there's someone who can't deal with the calories. Like you gotta choose a plan. That, just because you read in one of these glossy magazines that this celebrity followed this plan and she lost 30 pounds or he lost 40, it doesn't matter. Yeah. We all are built differently. We lose weight differently. So choose, so 
one big part of this book is helping you find the right plan for you, which is that chapter. And the last thing is I want people, once they've read the book and they've now taken their little notes for themselves, that now becomes what we used to say, you know, the crib notes, you know, um, cliff notes when I was in college. Yeah. That becomes your little cheat sheet that you can always, you don't have to go back to read the book, by the way. You go back to the little notes that I had you jot down during the book so that if you find yourself losing your motivation, if you find yourself not hitting your goals, if you find yourself in a situation where your roommate or your, your, your loved one who you live with is sabotaging you, you know, unknowingly by having stuff in the house you shouldn't have, this book, your notes you took from reading the book, now will help you be able to deal with all these different situations we encounter. And so once you finish Mind Overweight, now it's time to actually go on a plan. So that's my, you know, I wish this had been the first book. I, actually, I'm glad it wasn't the first book I wrote because I, it took me a while to understand after working with all my clients how important the mind was. So this is your beginning. This is ground zero. Um, another reason why I wanted to make it so, a, a, a cheaper book because if you're going to have this book and then you need the actual plan and then you're ready to rock. And I, th I think, you know, on my Instagram, by the way, follow me on Instagram uh, at Dr. Ian Smith, spell the doctor out, I-A-N Smith. Um, I try to give people on my Instagram page, like you do, little quick things that they can do in their life that will bring change. And, I, you know, um, I just think that Mind Overweight, this book will be a game changer for a lot of people. And if you can't afford to buy the book, geez, go to your library and you can rent it for free. You can download it. Libraries now let you have a certain number of downloads. However you can get it, get it because I think that you'll realize it's going to add value to what you're trying to do. Absolutely. All right. So follow, make sure you follow Dr. Ian Smith on Instagram. Where else can people get uh, information about you? Yeah. Uh, my website is drianSmith.com. Once again, doctor spelled out. And my Twitter is Smith. And a real quick plug. Mm -hmm. If you like mysteries, this is my book coming out October 1st. It's on Amazon. It's called The Unspoken. It's a great mystery. Um, it's already got an option to be a TV series. So fingers crossed, it makes nice. it. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a Chicago-based mystery uh, about a PI who lives in Chicago and solves cases in Chicago. And it's a lot of fun. So pick this up. Good for you, man. And this, this podcast will be out well before that is. So make sure you check it out. Can people pre-order? Oh yeah, it's available right now on Amazon.com. You can pre-order it. And hey, yo. <laughs> I'm starting a podcast. You come on my podcast. Yeah, we can do that. You can, you okay. can interview me. Uh, yeah. Doc, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, this was up another episode of the Fatter Future Podcast. Remember, don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of the future. Everybody laughs when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right.